when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello there, and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we look ahead to the events and stories that are likely to be grabbing the headlines and moving markets in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. This week, that means oil in all its glories, from drilling and production to transportation and pipelines. We'll talk trade at home and abroad, and finally, we'll be taking a look at the big drug companies. I'm joined by Emily Gosden, the energy editor of the Times, Marcus LaRue, our trade correspondent, and Alex Ralph, who also, among his other things, covers pharmaceutical companies. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. First of all, let's start out with energy companies. Marcus, I'm going to ask you first, because on the broader picture, we, we've already obviously heard from Shell, but we've got BP coming up. But the construction of pipelines and shale gas and tar sands in, in, in Canada, the whole sector's changed now. And I suppose the, the, the factor is Donald Trump. This is what he said recently uh, when he signed two orders for pipelines. This is construction of pipelines in this country. Uh, We are, and I am, very insistent that if we're going to build pipelines in the United States, the pipe should be made in the United States. So unless there's difficulty with that, because companies are going to have to sort of gear up, much pipeline is bought from other countries. Uh, From now on, we're going to start making pipeline in the United States. We build it in the United States. We build the pipelines. We want to build the pipe. Going to put a lot of workers, a lot of steel workers back to work. A lot of work there, Marcus, uh, which I'm sure will be welcome in the domestic market. But looking at it in the broader picture of, of, of global supplies, what's this going to mean most likely as it unfolds? Well, it was an interesting convergence there between his his domestic energy policy and, and his, you know, industrial policy on, on protecting jobs and erecting trade barriers, so sort of kind of peak Trump there almost. Well, what does it mean? Even aside from what is going through Donald Trump's minds, the energy market has been in, has been changed, not just in, in North America, but, but, but everywhere by what what the frackers have, have been able to do and how they've been able to adjust, not just how they've brought the US to the brink of energy self-sufficiency uh, from out of nowhere from, from, you know, 2007 or so, but also how they've been able to ad- adapt to, to low costs. Um, and everybody's written about this for a long time, but that doesn't make it less true that now with OPEC members having adjusted to, to, to life in the kind of 50 to $60 range, so to have unconventional shale producers in, in the US, and you've got a very, very different dynamic now where th- those guys will really act as a 
shock absorber that any time the OPEC or, or their pals outside OPEC, like the Russians, decide to hold the oil market's feet to the fire, the price can't get too high because then these drilled but uncompleted wells spring back to life in, you know, in, in, in Arkansas, in Texas and Oklahoma. And all of that can be reinforced absolutely by a president who wants to, to um, who puts self-sufficiency and, and, and American production on an elevated status. Emily, if I could bring you in, in here as energy editor, you obviously heard from Shell they had a bit of a nasty hit, but broadly speaking, we've got BP telling us more. The things that Marcus is talking about, do you hear from your contacts and the people that you talk to in the market? Is this something exercising them or have they already taken big decisions that are already, to coin the phrase, in the pipeline? in development. Do you feel that? I think companies clearly are paying incredibly close attention to what the market is shaping up to to be for the next year. And that said, however, they have already taken a lot of action to adjust for this lower for longer kind of environment we've heard them talking about. So they are certainly closely watching it because it makes a huge difference to their cash flow. And that's really important when you come to looking at protecting the dividend. And I think Shell has said something like every uh, $10 in oil price affects their uh, cash flow by $5 billion. So they are certainly watching it very closely and that will be affecting their investment decisions. But they are certainly already preparing for, for a lower environment. Great point there as well. Also brings out, I think, possibly there's a difference in, in, in attitude between the, the minnows and, and the super majors. The, the super majors have probably been slightly chided by, by investors over the last part of this cycle that you know they, they need to be more um, more responsible more disciplined in putting down capital you've had you know enormous sums I think you know trillions of dollars worth of projects have been kicked into the long grass since uh, since uh, oil prices began to slide in 2014 but set against that you've got smaller fleet or a foot particularly unconventional producers who can come back to the market pretty damn quickly should the market move in, in, in their favour. That, that adds a, a new pattern to, to the oil market compared with the sort of, you know, a gigantic pro- gigantic projects offshore with huge lead times. I absolutely agree with that. But one thing we have been seeing in some of the things like the International Agen- Energy Agency who take a, a wider view of this is they're saying even though US shale can respond quite quickly, that that may not be enough to compensate for the massive drop off in investment that we've seen over the last few years people have scaled back investment so much that potentially we are looking at heading towards quite steep price rises again towards 2020 do you see that marcus <laughs> you're asking me to predict the oil price you always do this <laughs> to be clear that wasn't a precise prediction <laughs> in terms of people learning to live in in the new reality alex you've watched this sector for a long time Dividends are so important, aren't they? It's the private investors, it's our pension funds. It's, it's more than a big macro picture that we're talking about here. How safe do you think they are? Or is there talk that actually it's almost like quarter to quarter now that people are wondering whether that income is still going to be coming in? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously these these stocks on the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250, whether it's, you know, the oil majors like like Shell and BP or whether it's the, um, you know, the service companies, they effectively, to a, to a great extent, track Brent or West Texas. And so, well, obviously, when oil is rising again, um, those share price track that, and that obviously is helpful for you know things like the dividends. Would you be still keeping your money in the sector, or have an exposure to it, or well, can you not afford not, not afford to? I think you know, obviously, it feels like we've hit the bottom, and there's money coming back into the sector now. All right, well, let's leave oil there for the moment, and uh, Marcus, next time you're back, we'll find out how that prediction's doing. Plenty of time till 2020, by the way, don't worry. Talking trade, we've got some industrial figures, uh, production and output coming up, but more broadly, and I suppose here again, Marcus, we're back to this, the two things that seem to be exercising you as trade correspondent, it's Brexit 
and it's what America's doing. Just bring us up to date with what we know so far, because it's very difficult for people to make investment decisions, isn't it? We're all still trying to second guess what's happening. What the government will certainly hope you see with the latest, you know, the latest balance of trade figures is the the, the post Brexit fall in the pound translating into a bit of uh, a bit of renewed manufacturing and export activity and certainly some of the the survey data that we had from manufacturers expect uh, suggests that beginning to come to fruition i mean further further out you know we're still the white paper was published published yesterday by the government but we're still fundamentally in the dark as to what the the trading relationship will look like with the eu and indeed when it will actually be negotiated because Barney, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator on the European side, still says that, that, that it'll be one after the other, that the divorce comes first and the new relationship afterwards. But having said that, we've, you know, we've, we've definitely seen a pragmatic tone from, from Liam Fox, the, the Secretary of State for Trade, in terms of minimising disruption. So we're, yes, we're heading towards a, clearly heading towards a hard Brexit, as, as Theresa May has said, we're leaving the single market and the likelihood is we'll leave and have to leave in large part the customs union. But if you read between the lines from what Liam Fox has been saying recently, there's a soft edge to that hard, hard Brexit and that his emphasis is on continuity and equivalence of regulations and behaving like good neighbours to the European Union. And the fascinating thing to watch will be how this can be reconciled with Britain positioning itself for a US trade deal because a US trade deal will imply lots of harmonisation and recognition of American regulations which will not go down well with, with our with our European cousins and this is where your you know your your chlorine washed chickens rear their, their heads. One of the other things that's come to light in the last week or so is that we haven't just got trade deals to renegotiate, we've also potentially got nuclear deals because they snuck out in the uh, sort of footnotes to the Brexit bill that we're also going to be leaving Euratom, which is this fairly little known, I would say, in the, in the world, known, uh, say, European yes. uh, nuclear organisation, uh, which is actually quite critical to a lot of things in the nuclear sector, but in particular to the government's ambitions for nuclear new build. So the US in particular actually doesn't allow its companies to trade with countries who don't have a a nuclear agreement. Now, the UK does not have a nuclear agreement with the US. It only has membership of Euratom, and Euratom has an agreement with the US. So we've seen the Nuclear Industry Association coming out this week saying it's really quite worried about the prospects of renegotiating a nuclear deal within the kind of two-year Brexit timeframe. And you see this with every agency imaginable, from from pharmaceuticals to, to, to you know, the food agencies and, and so on. Uh, energy is a good case. You know, the white paper mentioned had a passing reference to interconnection, we get on average about five percent of our electricity from um, uh, interconnection from Europe, basically French nuclear that we um, have a giant extension lead uh, running underneath the, the English Channel. Stop me, Emily, if that's uh, too technical a description. But it's, uh, it's currently got a hole in it. It's got, uh, yeah, well, well, it's also got a legal hole in it because the, there's there's no basis outside outside the European Union, and this gets a paragraph in, in the white paper. But it would other other things being equal in another you know in a, in another context be a massive piece of work in itself. And I know that it's one that the Department for Business in its old makeup was was very very worried about, and it's something that you know that, that EDF on the other side of the channel are quite exercised about making sure that that that. We need some kind of protocol, some kind of range, probably probably treaty that's that talks that, that that sets out how we buy energy from how we buy electricity from abroad to stop the to stop the lights going out. And Marcus mentioned the pharmaceutical industry just then, and it's something he knows an awful lot more about. But 
it was it, it came up this morning when Pascal, sorry, at the, um, the chief executive of AstraZeneca was going through um, their company's full year results in the city, and he was asked about what it meant for the European body which approves uh, medicines, and that's based in the UK, and he, it's his anticipation that that'll have to move back to Europe. And, and that's a very that's a really interesting point because Andrew, uh, Sir Andrew, but the apologies, the outgoing head of uh, GlaxoSmithKline told me in Davos a couple of weeks ago that he was still hopeful that EMA would be able to, to stay in Canary Wharf and this is important for you know I mean primarily important because uh, you've got 800 quite well paid jobs in, in, in London but it's also important just for the, the proximity and ease of access for um, biotech and drugs companies but I think more more importantly is, is just where we fit into the, 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 the EMA in, in a regulatory sense what do we have a seat at the table um, it will probably have to move you know half of Europe's thrown its hat in the ring to host it but to what extent we'll be able to, to have a say in those in, in those regulations when pharmaceuticals are one of our biggest exports that's the I think the, the big broader issue yeah and for for Mr Soriot the important thing was that for it to work there'd have to be some sort of reciprocal agreement whereby if it's approved in Europe it's also approved in the UK all right well that's a good time to take a short break we'll be back and when we do we'll be talking more drugs the times business podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's ready business Britain 2016 has been branded the year of the SME. This is your year. Time for your business to stand out. Are you ready? Vodafone's Ready Business Britain, in association with The Times and Sunday Times, has all the advice, insight and analysis your business needs to make this your year. Get ready. Visit readybusinessbritain.co.uk. Welcome back. Well, we were talking drugs earlier, and one of the reasons that it takes drug companies so much money is it takes a great deal of time to get approval. Now, uh, there is hope in the line, and I hate to say it, it's again President Trump who's leading uh, the charge on this one. This is what he had to say at a meeting recently with the main international pharmaceutical companies. One thing I really want you to do, a lot of, I've seen this over the years, but a lot of the companies have moved out. They don't make the drugs in our country anymore. A lot of that has to do with regulation. A lot of it has to do with the fact that other countries take advantage of us with their money and their money supply and devaluation because we don't know anything. Our country has been run so badly. We know nothing about devaluation. Every other country lives on devaluation. You look at what China is doing. You look at what Japan has done over the years. They, uh, they play the money market. They play the devaluation market. And we sit there like a bunch of dummies. I couldn't resist playing. There's a bit of currency bashing there in, in a meeting with the international pharmaceutical companies. But uh, Alex Ralph, I suppose the bottom line was it was meant to be and certainly gave a bit of a rocket to the uh, drug company shares. Just explain why. Yeah, I mean, Trump had the uh, the execs in to meet him this week. And, you know, as as with um, any of his comments, he, he deals in broad brushes. And this yeah, is you don't get much broader brush than that, do you? particularly cute for an industry which obviously deals in various shades of grey. But his message was twofold. One, that prices were far too high astronomical was was the word that he said and the other was the sort of trade-off that he said that he could speed up the approval process that's very important though isn't it and that's what was welcomed by the market you saw shares in pharmaceutical companies uh, rally on that yeah it's an important it's an important thing but i think as I, we mentioned pascal saw it earlier but he was cautiously welcoming on that this morning he said it's important that the fda which is um, the regulatory body in the united states continues to be science-led as were his words Yes, Marcus, I mean, what is it said to be 10 years, is it, from conception to actually getting a, a, a drug to market? Is that roughly it? It, it certainly can be on, on, on that time scale and you get various, you know, you get various estimates, but it's, it's years and, and they've only got a certain amount of patent protection on the, on the clock 
stick tar- starts ticking before they they bring it to market. So that is one way that you know that, that you can look at making it um, making it cheaper. But it's interesting that usually the the, the rule of thumb is ordinarily that, that if you start talking about um, astronomical healthcare costs and astronomical medicine prices, that drugs company <laughs> shares go down, not up. This is an interesting an interesting example. There is all already in both Europe and America a fast track scheme for first-in-class medicine, so, you know, if, if it's an untreated disease. That process has been expanding in recent years, and actually a lot of the complaints have been about, in the other direction, saying that, that this fast-track process isn't isn't policed uh, well enough, that, that the idea is that the regulator goes back and does follow-up tests, and that sometimes those follow-ups aren't as rigorous as they would be if the new drug was only coming onto the market. So what you're saying is a fine balance here between actually making what could be potentially life-saving drugs available more quickly, but at the same time saying there could be side effects. I mean, I'm thinking well, my generation back to the 50s and thalidomide. Everybody thinks back to, to thalidomide, but there are more recent, you know, there are more recent examples um, of side effects of drugs. You know, there was um, paroxetine, uh, I think I'm getting pronunciation right, which was a GSK depress, uh, a depression drug, which was very, very perfectly safe, but but um, got a, a license for use in, in, in children that was linked with suicidal thoughts eventually and things. You know, there, there are no shortage of... of, of of episodes where despite the sophistication and the, all of the, the, the long three-stage process of drug approvals, accidents still do happen. And there's also an argument that to lower drug prices, you know, there are a couple of things you could do, but one would be sorting out American, the American healthcare industry full stop, that, you know, we have as arduous or brought roughly as arduous an approval process as the states, but uh, Europe pays a heck of a lot less because there's more of a, a monopsony in, in terms of there's more consolidation in, in the people who buy the drugs. People like Ben Goldacre, who wrote a, a very, very interesting book on this sort of issue, he has, has even argued that on, on, on a cost-effectiveness basis, you could actually just, you could get enormous gains just by stopping development of new drugs and running trials on the efficacy of, of old drugs to work out which are most cost-effective. And that, you know, could actually reduce costs enormously if you were to find that, that various generics did just as well as, 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 as goods that were still, as, as products that were still still patent protected. So it's not a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a businessman solution to a very technical <coughs> and scientific problem and it's not actually, you know, it's not it's not, a, it's not one-way traffic. No, it's, it's certainly an issue which is which is occupying uh, boardrooms and, and investors and, and we've seen it suppress share prices uh, since uh, the build-up to the US election because it was obviously a drum which, which Hillary Clinton was also banging quite fiercely but but beyond that the companies have their sort of their own separate issues and and for AstraZeneca which which sort of kicked off the earnings season for the UK companies this morning it's got bigger concerns really at the moment which is basically bringing through this pipeline which has got massive expectation particularly around some of the, the cancer drugs it's, it's trying to get approval for and which is basically investors are waiting waiting for the middle of this year to see how that goes. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Alex. And of course, uh, Alex will be following the other results. As you mentioned, the start of the reporting season for the pharmaceuticals, that's including AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, and of course, Smith and Nephew. Now, remember, you can keep up to date with those and, of course, all the other stories and the analysis online on your phone, iPad, and, of course, don't forget the paper. Uh, If you don't have a subscription, you can go to thetimes.co.uk and uh, you'll be able to then sign up to our daily morning and lunchtime business emails. Do highly recommend it. If you want to hear us weekly, you can subscribe through iTunes uh, and uh, do feel free to post your comments. We'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Alex Ralph, Marcus LaRue and Emily Gosden. Thank you all very much. They're on Twitter, so please do follow them. Join us again next week. And thanks for listening.
The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.